Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Joel Tarr and Edward Muller, authors of Making Industrial Pittsburgh Modern. Our guests today are Edward Muller and Joel Tarr, and they are the authors of this book, Making Industrial Pittsburgh Modern. Uh, Edward Muller, we'll start with you. If someone buys this book, what do they get? They get a, uh, several essays that uh, look at um, uh, landscape of the city. They look at the environment of the city, look at energy and transportation and planning in the late 19th, early 20th century when Pittsburgh was exploding in population and industry and uh, needed to uh, catch up to its industrial growth. And, and, and so various kinds of infrastructure um, were critical to taking it from a 19th century city into a 20th century city. And, Mo and modern that's being what, 20th century? Beg your pardon? Modern being 20th century? Modern <laughs> being 20th century, yes. Um, I, I realize it's 2020 now, but, but um, you know, uh, if you look around Pittsburgh, a good deal of, of the foundation of the infrastructure of the city is, is still laid out in various parts of the book. This is not a coherent uh, strategy in this book as if you're going to read a single volume and go from A to B on infrastructure. It's a collection of essays that uh, Joel and I either wrote together or separately uh, over the years about different aspects uh, of the uh, modernizing infrastructure. Joel, what interests you in this topic? Well, essentially, um, Ted and I have a somewhat different approach to the way we look at um, Pittsburgh. Um, we've worked together for years, um, and but Ted tends, it comes out of a geography background, historical geography background, and I come out more so um, in terms of my development of my career, urban infrastructure and urban environment um, and energy kinds of issues. So um, this book includes a number of my essays that deal with um, the environment, that deal with energy, um, and deal with transportation and changes in the cities that occurs in terms of relationship to the infrastructure development and changes from horses to streetcars to automobiles and the impact that these different transportation systems and technologies had upon the city and the distribution of population. I was just going to say, uh, it's a, a way to put that, I think, right, is, is that as the city exploded in the early 20th century, it had to be retrofitted, in effect. Uh, from being a pedestrian, which Joel has an essay on uh, city, and then to use your word, networked uh, into a modern sprawling metropolis, which one of our essays in here um, uh, describes how, you know, from today's point of view, people don't realize that by 1910, 1920, Pittsburgh and its region was somewhere, arguably, between the fifth and seventh largest metropolitan area in the country. So it was one of the big boys, and they had to catch up. Uh, and so Joel has written 
extensively on the networking of the city uh, in various ways. When, when you come to Pittsburgh, you notice that not only does it have all these rivers, but it has all these mountains. Is this kind of a bad place to try to put a city of this size? Well, first of all, they're not mountains, really. It is, um, the, what we have here basically is an uplifted penny plane um, that was bisected and cut into over many eons by the rivers. So if you stand at the top of, if you stand in Mount Washington in one of those observation decks and look out over the city, you'll notice that the other high points of the city are all at the same level that you're at. Um, so um, um, you could say, well, maybe Pittsburgh is part of the Appalachian chain. It really isn't. Um, but the fact that Pittsburgh was at the joining of the Monongahela and the Allegheny River to form the Ohio is a tremendous advantage in terms of certainly a military advantage initially, but later on in terms of the development of commerce and the development of industry um, and the spread of the city. So I think that the, the configuration, the mixture of elevations, hills, rivers, um, valleys, um, is a very dramatic combination. Was that an, an advantage when they wanted to modernize the city, or was it an impediment? It was a difficulty. <laughs> That's the way I'd put it. It was expensive because of all the bridges, for example, that had to be built, or eventually uh, uh, driving some tunnels through uh, to get to downtown. Um, it was expensive in terms of, uh, and Joel actually can describe this better than I, in uh, uh, energy uh, delivery, distribution of uh, natural gas, for example. Um, and uh, uh, in building roads. Um, I heard yesterday, for example, on the local news that at the moment Allegheny County has 53 landslides that uh, have come down on roads that uh, they're trying to deal with and, uh, and everybody's screaming, you know, get my road fixed. And I don't mean my road in the sense of a driveway. I mean, you know, the, my major, major artery to the shopping center or something, and as the uh, spokeswoman for the regional PennDOT office said, well, we can put money into that, but somebody else is going to complain because we won't have money for their landslide. Well, that, uh, that's just a good example of the difficulties that it created. But I, I agree with Joel. Um, it also creates just gorgeous settings. And, uh, uh, you know, and so when you look around the city and the region, um, the housing settings are, are very dramatic, although they can be very difficult as, as well. I mean, you know, you watch your patio slide away, it's, it's a problem. I was just going to say that having lived in flat cities, um, I grew up outside of, in New Jersey, outside of New York City, but then I went to Chicago and lived there where I, I took my PhD at Northwestern, and then I taught in, um, in California for um, six years before I came to Pittsburgh, and flat areas, flat cities. Flat cities are boring. They are boring. Um, and um, it's much more interesting to have um, the hills and the valleys. Of course, it does complicate driving. It usually takes a minimum of five years or so to become adjusted to um, um, Pittsburgh roads and directions, and many times more than that. I still get lost on occasion. 
Um, and of course, even though we supposedly have this wonderful um, 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 electronic um, 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 ability systems to help us get to where we want to get, um, I find that Google has made mistakes several times in terms of getting me to my destinations um, in the city. Well, one of the things that is easier to do in a flat city is lay out a grid right, for the exactly. streets. And you, one of you wrote about, the, maybe both of you wrote about a chapter about how they decided on laying out the grid because you had well, lines like this that you have to lay into a triangle. Yes, I, yeah, that, that's with downtown yeah. <laughs> in particular. Although variants of that can be seen in various communities around the region. But mm. yeah, when, when uh, Pittsburgh was being developed finally after uh, the various Indian and Native American, excuse me, <laughs> and, and uh, British and French uh, problems in the late uh, 18th century, um, they did what people did in America at that time, and, and that is put down a grid with the base of the grid facing the wharf, in this case, the Monongahela River. Perfect, and they lay it out very much like Philadelphia, you know, uh, perpendicular streets coming in, a central market square, um, and all that problem is, unlike Philadelphia, where the Schuylkill and the Delaware at downtown are roughly parallel to each other, here, the Allegheny's coming in at an angle. Hmm, what do we do now? This is the 1780s. So what'd they do? They put a little grid facing the Allegheny, and that creates this awkward junction on Liberty Avenue in downtown, and these little triangular blocks really building. Uh, so traffic engineers have hated it ever since, right? But I'm telling you, it makes downtown so much more interesting than if you're in, I hate to use another, we'll say a Midwestern city, with very broad streets, and you look and you can see as far as the eye can see until it kind of goes off in the distance. Here in downtown, you turn and look, you're likely to see Mount Washington. Or you turn the other way, what the great example of this is if you're in Market Square in warmer weather, they have a fountain on with a waterfall uh, at the, uh, uh, or Heinz, um, Point. Uh, no, they, uh, Heinz Hall is the symphony uh, thing and you stand here and that's what you see that's the end point is this water coming down there's all kinds of things like that it makes it really interesting well the other thing that the, the city has today because of when it was laid out is the the width of the streets yeah. I mean they were laid out yeah. before cars exactly not changeable well there were some um, attempts to um, widen streets in the early 20th century and if you look at um, Olmsted's plan for the downtown, Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. of 1910, there's a number of recommendations about street widening that he makes, um, and um, some of which was carried out um, in the period after that. But of course, the automobile changes so much. Um, of course, this, you have this established electric streetcar system. Um, before that, you had the horse cars, um, but the automobile as it comes in in a real rush, I think that's the only way to describe it, particularly after World War I, um, changes the use of streets, changes the risk that pedestrians are put at very, very much, um, and um, it changes all of the, con the concepts that traffic engineers had about how you try to design the city to make it more efficient for driving about and getting from point A to point B.
Something people might be surprised to learn reading this is that Pittsburgh had a cable car system for yes. a time, not yes. just San Francisco. Well, many, there were probably, um, off the top of my head, at least 10 cities that had cable car systems, um, and, and Pittsburgh was one of them. Um, cable cars began operating in 1888. Um, they only lasted for a few years, and that's because electric, they couldn't really compete with the electric streetcar. But they were very significant, and they used the main arteries into the downtown, like Penn Avenue, for instance, and Forbes Avenue, and so on, um, that were used before that originally for, um, by American Indians as for trails, by the colonists as pathways, and then um, going on beyond that. Wagons by, and, yeah. I'm sorry? Wagoning. Yeah, wagoning. And, um, so it's really, so the basic largest scope of the layout of the region, really, in many ways, was created um, quite a, a, long, a long time ago. Now, we'll have to jump around a lot chronologically doing yeah. this program, but uh, while we're on the subject of transportation, you wrote a chapter on something called the Sky Bus. Yes. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> uh, this is in the 1960s, uh, when um, post-World War, America, uh, World War II America, and cities were, were uh, re recovering, shall we say, from the Depression uh, and, you know, the um, uh, constraints of war, right, you know, on gasoline and tires and so on. So the cities were booming. And, um, and it was becoming an um, article of faith, uh, I would say, uh, by the transportation experts that we were going to have to go to mass transit, which, um, are, or yes, mass tra rapid transit, excuse me. The difference being mass transit, like the streetcars and so on, moves lots of people. Rapid transit does the same thing, but on separate rights of way, so that they can do it rapidly, right? So um, Westinghouse Corporation, seeing this, uh, was developing a, um, driverless, uh, electric uh, kind of mass transit, like actually you see at a lot of airports today, such as in Tampa and Jacksonville and so on, where you, you know, get out of your plane, walk a little way, and you get onto these separate, in Dallas is another one where it rides around the whole place. Uh, and, well, that's the idea, except this was going to be local uh, rapid transit. And um, the um, federal government was really... Uh, very anxious for it. They, they very much wanted it. And, uh, but, but the problem in my view, and I'm glad it wasn't built, is that it was to be on elevated concrete, uh, uh, what? Guideways. 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 That's a better way to put it. Thank you. And, um, and they would have left a terrible shadow. You know, remember the elevators, <laughs> a lot trains when they came into New York, you know, wow, in the, what, 1880s or 70s? They were a big development. And, of course, the street below was just a disaster area. And you can, in Chicago is another example of that. So this, this was going to be the, the, the uh, Pittsburgh's contribution, but it also was picked up by the post-World War II um, uh, Con Allegheny Conference that was trying to help Pittsburgh uh, develop again in, and wanted to diversify the industry from not just iron and steel. And so they saw Skybus, these, these little driverless um, 
uh, cars, uh, like three or four together, uh, as a means to solve two things. One is the transit uh, issues that was uh, for Allegheny County in the area, but also a rapid transit industry to build on its uh, long-standing railroad industry. Uh, you know, uh, cars and rails and couplers and all the other things that were involved. So they twinned these together and pushed it and, it, and almost did it. The federal government uh, had money for them and all, but it fell apart on local politics. Two leaders on the private and public sector retired and died, the Mellon and, and, and uh, one of the Mellons, R.K. Mellon. And so, so the story could go on and on. Uh, I urge people to read it. But, but the mm -hmm. point is, this was, this was a, not simply a transit goal. It was also an industrial targeting goal. Well, one of the uh, sources of opposition you wrote about was the, the steel workers' unions, was it? Because they were using rubber wheels and not steel rails. Yes. Uh, two parts of that um, opposition, there are three in, in total, but one was the, uh, the steel industry wanted to have s rails and not simply rubber tires. That, that's one. Uh, two was the uh, unions of transportation union, I can't think of the name right mm -hmm. now, didn't like the idea of driverless. Mm -hmm. Oh, this was going to be too dangerous. Uh, what was it Mayor Flaherty used to hold out it, it, if it's, it's 6.30 or 7 in the evening on a, on a dark uh, weekday uh, and, and a secretary, this is 1960s, right, uh, comes out after having dinner in town, you know, festive time, and goes to, to the uh, light rail, or uh, not light rail, the uh, sky, sky bus, bus station, and she gets on and she's all alone there. What can she do if she's being threatened by somebody because there's no driver or anything? And you, you see where that's heading. And then the third uh, opposition came from those towns in the Monongah, industrial towns in Monongahela Valley in particular, but also minority neighborhoods in the east end of Pittsburgh who were not projected to get the sky bus. It was going to, of course, go out to the uh, middle class and, and higher suburbs, right? The in South particular, Hills. In, in this case, the South Hills. And they raised a terrible stink uh, because we were being left out again, neglected. Another thing uh, that since we're on the subject of transportation, that you notice when you visit Pittsburgh is, unlike most big cities that have bypasses or beltways, all the major highways go mm -hmm. right through the middle of the city. Mm -hmm. Whose idea was that? Well, I, it's hard to say. The, uh, there was always a very strong um, push and impetus on the part of the business community and the business elites to maintain the integrity of the downtown and to, to maintain what we, can, we call the Golden Triangle now. And this, therefore, um, meant making sure that low, most transportation lines had as a designation point um, the, the downtown. That's also true, though, that in the period when you begin to get, after the First World War particularly, when you begin to get the development of new road systems, there are attempts, basically, because of the recognition the intensity of the traffic in the downtown uh, to have not bypasses but other road systems um, of various kinds. And you know there have been a number of different proposals um, 
over time, and one is actually coming to closer fruition, to have a ring road of a kind. We still we have a rudimentary ring road, and um, it's been a very controversial thing. And the, one of the major reasons for its controversy is because of uh, the feeling that it will detract from the downtown focus, it take traffic away from the downtown, it take shopping away from the downtown, and so on. So um, what you have is a building of this network of road systems uh, in many ways, but the, where the ultimate destination and endpoint is getting people into the downtown. For, for, both for, tra for, for, for working and for tra shopping, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, that's fine. Yeah. I just, I think, add, because I don't know how many people recognize this, that the uh, downtowns by the late 1920s, I mean nationally speaking, were very concerned about the emergence of suburban retail right. districts. Not shopping centers per se, just uh, you know the fact that these uh, retail was sh uh, was uh, popping up in strength, and then the depression comes, and you know downtowns struggle in America yeah. to get through the depression. Uh, the department stores, in particular, those are your anchors of your commercial side of things, and so you come out <clears throat> of World War II, and there's a national conversation going on among experts. Uh, about how to save downtowns. Um, well, the other side of that conversation, of course, is the interstates and, and as you say, beltways. But, but Pittsburgh stopped growing in the, as a city in 1950 and as a region in the 1960s. So the idea of putting a beltway around was just going to strangle downtown even, <laughs> even more. Does, does it work, though, to have the highways come into the city to actually bring people into the city, or are they just passing through? Well, that, that was always a matter of, um, of um, concern, uh, whether you uh, people just passing through or is downtown a destination point, an endpoint destination. Um, and also there was a, because you had so much traffic going through downtown that we didn't necessarily have it as a destination point, and increased the really the traffic jams that you had, and raised all these concerns about m making it more efficient, basically, um, in terms of traffic. Um, but um, I think there's a consistent arguments that go on over time uh, about um, dealing with traffic into the downtown, fast ex uh, entry to the downtown, fast exit from the downtown. Um, how do you accommodate? Both in the beginning, horse-drawn vehicles and electric streetcars and cable cars too, as you mentioned, and automobiles when they come along on basically this street pattern that was laid out a long time ago. How do you handle that? Um, and also, how do you deal with the question I mentioned this before of the fact that pedestrians are at risk in many ways increasingly? And I think there's a section in the book there where I talk about the number of the hundreds of people pedestrians were killed by automobiles in the 1920s. As many as 300 pedestrians a year being killed by automobiles, um, many of them in the downtown area. Well, you talked earlier about some of the other cities you've lived in. How does Pittsburgh measure up in terms of public transportation, about bringing people, commuters, into the city using public transportation instead of cars? Well, of course, other cities built um, subways um, to try to accomplish that. Uh, Pittsburgh actually voted in a referendum to build a subway um, I guess the vote was in 
was it 1919? Yeah, um, 16 uh, or 19. Uh, to, uh, and then they never did build it. It's just like in Cincinnati, they actually began building a subway there, and they never completed it. So that, from the perspective of um, rapid transit, and that's what the term I think we need to use here, Pittsburgh has been very deficient. Aside from the fact that you can argue that the busways furnish a, a kind of variant of rapid transit because they have their own private right private right-of-ways, and they've been actually quite a successful part of the, um, of the, the, the con when Skybus was blocked, um, um, and they didn't want to lose the federal money, so um, they sat down and tried to work out a compromise, and the compromise they worked out basically was to build a light rail system with a downtown subway loop that would be free and going out into the South Hills um, area as um, uh, Ted had mentioned, and also to build these um, uh, uh, busways. And there are basically uh, three busways now, I guess. Um, they, they, they keep on extending them further out. Um, and the busways are um, a relatively efficient solution to part of this problem of moving people around the city. Are those systems thought to be successful? Depends how you define success. <laughs> in terms of success, in terms of financial success, success in terms of um, getting people to work on time, getting kids to school on time, um, I guess it's a variable kind of thing. <laughs> well, if I'm not wrong, it's no more financially viable than successful, quote, mass transit and other, uh, yeah. rapid transit right. in other cities. There's this notion of, uh, in our country that, uh, unlike, say, Europe or, or elsewhere, that, you know, uh, transit should pay for itself. You know, this is a perennial topic in your hometown, right, uh, over in the, in the capital. Um, and uh, how are we funding part of it? On the back of the Pennsylvania Turnpike, <laughs> $400 million a year or something? I mean, it's a crazy, it's a non-solution. And, and that's going to go away. I, I, w I just wanted to go back to one thing, and this is a personal statement because I, I've not written about it, and I don't, I don't think you have either particularly. Um, but uh, going back to a point you made earlier, this is one time the topography is, is not an easy uh, problem because when you start to move laterally around the city, that as opposed when you, commit, when you do um, uh, radials, which is what we have for you're going down valleys. When you do laterals, you're you're <laughs> going from hill to hill to hill, and it's not cheap. Well, you you quote in here uh, correspondent Ernie Pyle, who wrote Pittsburgh is undoubtedly the cockeyedest city in the United States. Physically, it is absolutely right. irrational. It must have been laid out by a mountain goat. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, we could talk about transportation the whole time, but your book really covers a lot more than that. Yeah. And, uh, and if you have a favorite topic you want to jump in on, let me know. But I have to read this part about, uh, you write about uh, Pittsburgh as the smoky city. Yeah. And in it, you say, 19th century writers often talked about the salubrity of the city's environment, arguing that the smoke possessed anti-miasmatic qualities. As late as the 1870s and 1880s, the Pittsburgh Board of Health linked the city's low death rate from consumption to the healthfulness of Pittsburgh's smoky air. Yes. Well, there's no doubt. Can I urge yeah, you? Go in, ahead. In, okay. an, no, in, in answering this, because yes. this is right yeah. in your wheelhouse. Um, to don't forget gas at the time because the 
current. Yeah, would know, I? Would I? People today. Would I forget well, gas? I don't know. <laughs> you might get because you've written so much about smoke. You might never well, get out of the smoke. The natural gas essays in there too. Remember? Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> that, that's why I'm bringing it up. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, at any rate, um, the smoke has all been both a, a blessing and a curse to the city over its history. There's no doubt about it. It, it provided coal, bituminous coal provided cheap easily available coal on energy sources for the residences, for commercial activities, for industry. But it also produced heavy smoke. And so you have this, um, there is a tendency to be willing to live with the smoke, I think, um, and for much of the 19th century, because of the feeling that, well, it's what we, the price we pay for the benefits. Um, and. Um, of course, the people that live nearest the industrial locations, like the mills, for instance, and so on, were those that suffered the most also from the effects of the smoke. But um, you've always had this tension in Pittsburgh. Look, if you look at what's going on right now with the Clarendon Coke Works, the question is, um, what do we do about the fact that Pittsburgh has about the sixth or seventh worst air quality of any city in the United States, any large city in the United States? You know, but. And there are always those who are going to argue that, well, that's the price we pay for the fact that we have an industry, we have jobs, we have economic benefits from, from, from the fact that we do have um, a bad or poor air quality. So I think that this is a consistent theme and tension throughout Pittsburgh history between um, air quality on the one hand, um, cheap energy and available fuel on the other hand. Um, and um, it's, it is not an easy, it is not an easy kind of um, problem, not even problem, but it is not an easy kind of issue to solve, really. It's um, because you have, um, you, you always find people clashing over this. But, go ahead, I'm sorry. What, what is the natural gas connection that... Uh, okay. That <laughs> I mean, he's the guy that's written about this. So, um, uh, I became interested in um, the fact that natural gas was important in Pittsburgh history. I'd written about coal and, uh, and about smoke, and I ran across the fact quite clearly that one of the things that solved the problem of smoke, here they have heavy smoke, let's make that clear, was the fact that cheap natural gas came into the city. But it came in at different times. The first time it came into the city was in the 1880s when they made large discoveries of natural gas. Um, not only in the region, in Murray, Murraysville area and so on, but also in the city of Pittsburgh itself. And the story about George Westinghouse, who owned this big estate on, um, um, in, um, in, um, on North Point Breeze, sunk a, a well on his property um, to see whether he could get some gas to heat up his greenhouse, and he had a hit a boomer. You know, they said you could see the, it caught fire, and you could see it for miles and miles and miles. Um, Westinghouse, who is really, in many ways, the key inventor and technological innovator in the history of the city, um, saw the possibilities of natural gas very early on. He actually patented almost 25 to 30 improvements in terms of the distribution of natural gas, the metering, metering of natural gas, and a lot of these things took place in the 1880s and 1890s. But the gas ran out, the local gas ran out, like it often does in a boom situation. And then we go back to coal, not entirely because we did 
still get a, get a lot of natural gas from West Virginia and places like that. Well, you also have a picture in your book of the McKeesport Natural Gas Boom well, in 1919, right, exactly. which is pretty impressive. Well, that's the 1919 to 1921 rigs. McKeesport Natural Gas Boom. It's really in North Versailles that they, they was hit. Um, what happened was that they, they'd always been drilling for natural gas around the region, um, um, even though the massive amounts of um, supplies had disappeared. And then in 1919, they hit um, this, this um, well um, in um, North Versailles. And once they hit that big well, everybody else started drilling. And in the, um, they actually probably drilled 1,000 natural gas wells in a very limited area of, of about 100 acres or so, where you had, usually there is a formula that's used by natural gas companies about how closely you should have the, the wells located. Well, they violated all the rules when it came to McKeesport. And um, because you have this, uh, the law of capture in place, which means basically, um, if, so you, you sink a well, you have gas, your neighbor sinks a well, and because they, they want the gas too, and they want to get it as quickly as they can, because they believe if they don't get it, the other guy's going to get it. So that's why you have that picture of showing an immensely high density of derricks and wells um, in the McKee, what's called the McKeesport boom, um, because everybody was out to get their share. And even though the state geologists came in and warned in the very beginning, if you continue to doing this, you're going to exhaust that field within two years. Well, a lot of people didn't believe them. They kept on drilling, and guess what? The, the geologists were correct. And by the two years, they really had basically run out. How was the natural gas used in the beginning, in the 1880s? Who were the customers? Well, it was used by residences. It was used by they industry. They laid down gas oh, pipes yeah. to oh, residences yeah, yeah. that early? All over the city. Um, Westinghouse, had, Westinghouse had the largest um, natural gas company. And there, were, there were a number of them laying gas pipes throughout the city. Um, you can find pictures in the historic Pittsburgh collection showing them laying um, gas pipes. And there was a lot of confusion and argument about rights of way in regard to the pipes, as you might expect. Um, and then there was a lot, there were a number of explosions because it was a very new thing. So, for instance, suppose you had natural gas piped into your house um, and the gas went out and so you lit your lantern and went down to the basement to see if you could find where the leak was. Well, you know what's going to happen. <laughs> uh, and there were extraordinarily large number of explosions um, from the use of the gas. Um, um, although, um, you know, they continued to use gas. Um, as I said, not at the same, it became much more expensive once the local supplies ran out. But people who could afford it still used the natural gas. And you do write. The, the second, go ahead. You do write, in 1906, for instance, the Clarion Water Company in Clarion County complained that the development of natural gas and oil wells in the watershed had polluted the sources of water right. from which they supplied the town. So the, the, the charges right. of natural gas drilling affecting the water supply are, are nothing new. Well, but in that, that chapter, um, what I basically did, I said, how do I understand the impacts of the first natural gas boom on the city in terms of the environment? The focus was the environmental effects. I said, well, I'm going to take the model that's been developed and we got the fracking today and fracking development today for natural gas and backcast it and see if we can find out whether a lot of those things happened in the past also. And guess what? Many of the same kinds of things happened. Devastation of the forests, building of roads, explosions, the pollution of water supplies, the pollution of wells, and so on along the line. 
Um, and so you do get some legislation passed. Um, enforcement was very poor, though, in terms of controlling the effects of natural gas on the environment. Um, and um, it, it's, um, it's, a, it's a, basically it's a situation that um, we haven't, we're still trying to deal, as you know, because of fracking with some of these environmental impacts. But let me just jump, okay, to the second great period of natural gas development. Um, as I said, much of the natural gas supplies had run out, and by the Second World War, about 80% of the homes in Pittsburgh were using coal again, and the industry was using coal. Um, and then, they, so they passed the Smoke Control Act in 1940, 1941, to try to do something about controlling the smoke. And the, reason, the way they thought that they would accomplish that was by basically changing fuel types. If you change to a cleaner fuel, then you're not going to have the kinds of air quality um, problems that you're going that you had. So um, they passed the act, but at the same time as the act is basically enforced after World War II, cheap natural gas from the southwest is piped into the city, and it's an interesting story because in my mind, and I've argued this in um, in several talks I've given, the real thing that solves the Pittsburgh smoke problem is not the Smoke Control Act of 1941 and its enforcement, although it certainly made a contribution, really is the fact that cheap natural gas came into the city um, in 1947 and 48. And this cheap natural gas came into the city in something called Big Inch and Little Inch. Well, what, what were they? They were the longest pipelines built in the world um, uh, to transport oil originally. Um, and they were built during World War II because the German submarine fleet was sinking the, the tankers, oil tankers, as quickly as they could leave the ports like um, Houston and, and Galveston and so on. And so the federal government decided they had to do something to get the oil into the industrial areas. They built these two long line pipelines. At the end of World War II, the government sells off its war surplus material, and they sell the pipelines to a group of entrepreneurs that included Pittsburgh from Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh in the coal, from the coal industry in Pittsburgh also, by the way, and the melons also who decided to convert the pipelines, the oil pipelines, to natural gas. Why? Because they knew that the natural gas in Texas and those places in Louisiana was being flared off, it was being burned off because there's no industry there to use it. So they said, we're going to convert, we're going to change those pipelines to natural gas pipelines, we're going to get the natural gas into the city, and it comes in at the same time as the city is trying to enforce the Smoke Control Act. And you, where you end is up as a much cleaner, um, smoke, or not free city, but much less heavy smoke than you had had. Something else you notice, we, you know, we talked about the hills around Pittsburgh, yeah. but uh, we haven't really talked about the rivers, and uh, Ed, Edward Muller, in your chapter, you quote Frank Lloyd Wright as saying that uh, the pejorative judgment, his pejorative judgment is that in spite of the river, in spite of a river ought to be a Pittsburgh town slogan. <laughs> what did he mean? Well, uh, he meant, in essence, we used them as industrial infrastructure and polluted them and made them uh, unwelcoming. Um, one of our former colleagues, who's no longer with us, uh, and worked closely with Joel for a while, uh, Michael Weber, oh, yeah. uh, proudly used to say, uh, he grew up in the city, and he proudly used to say, well, 
We used to swim in the river. This is no <laughs> doubt yeah. in the 40s probably, given Michael. Uh, but we had to essentially trespass um, through industry, uh, take our lives in our hands on very active railroad lines that weren't a single, <laughs> single set of tracks, but were multiple tracks to get to the rivers to swim in them, which were terribly polluted uh, at the time. So, you know, in, in effect, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright was really saying something that had been um, parroted by uh, people before him, uh, particularly planners um, and architects. Uh, but he, he was brought to the city uh, with the idea to make a proposal about how to use the riverfronts in in a more in the central riverfronts downtown area and, and across the river from there, in a more um, um, humane manner, uh, particularly because industry had really been moving out, and he came to do it, and, and he just ran into resistance, and he and he uh, in his um, only Frank Lloyd Wright manner took one look at it all. Uh, he was unhappy with the uh, with his treatment in, with the welcoming committee in Pittsburgh, and um, he popped off. <laughs> and and of course this has been repeated hundreds of times because somewhere in the midst of all that he says they ought to abandon it, uh, you know the city. Um, and of course that it's it's taken a bit out of context, but still the the spirit of it. Well, you write that in the 1970s, as late as the 1970s, when cities such as Boston, Baltimore, and Portland, Oregon were famously redefining their waterfronts, most Pittsburgh leaders had not fully grasped the great potential of the rivers for improving the city's quality mm -hmm. of life and contributing to its economic development. Two signature public projects erected during the decade, the Convention Center and Three Rivers Stadium, ignored the rivers despite their being located on central riverfronts. And named so Three Rivers Three River Stadium and you can't see the river. Um, yeah, no, and, and that article is arguing that really from very early on, Frank Lloyd, uh, Frederick Law Olmsted uh, that uh, Joel uh, referenced earlier, the first plan of, of the city, so to speak, in 1910 and on, plan after plan, major people such as Frank Lloyd Wright being brought in, but Robert Moses in the 30s and other names that I could mention that wouldn't be as well known to the audience, but were big names in planning. And they ran into the same thing over and over again. The rivers were viewed by city leaders as a priority for business and industry and transportation, railroads. And then what was left, uh, not developed, could be used for recreational or uh, visual uh, benefits, but if industry and, uh, or transportation wanted that property in the future, the city would be sure that they got it. And that mentality lasted weakening step by step, but uh, in Point Park, um, which is where, not, not in this, but, <laughs> but uh, Point Park was really one of the major things that pointed out there could be other uses that would benefit the city, but the, the, in the end, that's a small piece of land and not terribly uh, used anymore. Uh, uh, a lot of abandonment, and um, that didn't turn the tide completely. And so, when you get into the 70s, um, that mentality is still holding, still holding, and then deindustrialization, you know, just smashes down. It had been going on. 
but it smashes down in the late 18, 1970s, and, and the peak of it in many ways is 1983. Hmm, maybe we need to be looking for other opportunities. And, and so they begin to see things like people drove to the inner harbor of Baltimore for rec time, you know, things to do, and they were fascinated by it. You know, well, this is San Antonio's Riverwalk. Uh, even New York's got had a few things going on at the time. Was that the idea behind uh, making Point Park? Well, yes. Uh, not not to ch turn the city around in terms of thinking about the riverfronts. No, it was in terms of turning the city around as a uh, 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 to to redevelop the city in general. To build after uh, the uh, slowing down our rate of growth slowed down in the 20s for industry, depression. The war, of course, took care of that for a while, and they were terrified of, uh, like many other cities, of what would happen uh, after World War II. Uh, they didn't really anticipate the consumer explosion that, in fact, you know, suburbanization and, and all of that. But uh, so redeveloping the point uh, as a symbolic historical and geographical importance to the nation. There was a model for this, what St. Louis was doing in turning their uh, water, uh, yeah, riverfront into a national park with the arch. And Pittsburgh looked at St. Louis and, and tried to get the national park established there because this is an historic um, location uh, in, in this area and for national reasons. Um, Lewis and Clark, you know, that's where the expedition started and things like that. The uh, National Park Service took one look and said, that is so completely changed by industry. What, and, what was there at the time? Uh, well, there, there was uh, uh, freight yards for the Pennsylvania Railroad and, and uh, uh, warehousing. Uh, there were still some leftover industries from, from decades before. Um, there were rundown residential area, a few rundown residential blocks, and of course abandoned land, and so it. Well, there's also yeah, railroad um, um, stations, is the, um, uh, but also the Pittsburgh Industrial Exhibition Hall, oh, yeah. which lasted, which is a huge area. They used to show off every year Pittsburgh industrial products in this huge hall that existed down there, which lasted, I don't think it took it down to about 1950 or so, on pretty late, as a matter of fact. But, but, but its it, utility was gone. Its utility was gone, yeah. There was, but it was a mixture, as Ted pointed out, a mixture of all kinds of other uses. In fact, they turned that area around the exhibit into a, a pound for towed cars, uh, <laughs> which is pretty symbolic in its own right. So, um, and, and there's a nice story, to, a short story to this uh, for Pennsylvanians watching the, the network. And that is is that they really struggled for years to figure out how to redevelop this. And the National Park incident's an example of that. But they, after the war, they came to the conclusion they simply had to do this. this. But how to bring the free, as you mentioned earlier, freeways or uh, into the city and out, uh, which logically wow. come together at that point. And so how do you uh, develop the point in this symbolic, historic manner with all this traffic coming in and out? And Robert Moses' solution, the great planner of New York, uh, 
uh, was to put the, the bridges and the tunnels and the roads together and have a little green space uh, in between. Of course, if you were there, you couldn't see anything because the, the ramps were coming, you know, the whole, the whole mess. So eventually what they do is they come up with a plan that it would re, uh, require taking down the two bridges at the point and moving them back along the riverfront, I don't know how far, 50 it, yards or Railroad so. bridges or car bridges? No, no, no car, car bridges. bridges. Car bridges. The old point bridge. And, and one was a relatively bridge. new bridge, um, 20s yeah. or whatever. But at any rate, the point is, you don't just take down major bridges and put in new ones. It, you know, that's expensive. And the story is, is that the governor, Governor Martin of Pennsylvania, was approached and they showed him the plans and they explained the reason and he basically said, let's do it. And the state, and that's why it's not Point Park, it's Point it's state, state Park. Park. That's its real name. Yeah. Uh, so it's a good story when, of how government can really be a, uh, an important um, uh, building momentum and, and doing things that a region needed because the, the Point Park has been critical. Uh, any of any of the football fans out there know that on Monday night football, what do they show all the time? Point Park, <laughs> you know, at night. You say in the, the book that downtown Pittsburgh is a work in progress. Yes. What's, what's it progressing from to what still needs to be done? All good questions. Um, we know now what it progressed from, but the question of where it's going. Where it's going. This, this is true of, of almost of most American cities. Um, look, just... Uh, uh, this past weekend, there was a uh, very major article in the New York Times, uh, I think in the style section or something, something like that. Uh, it was business section. But how Fifth Avenue, the great vistas of Fifth Avenue with the Empire State Building at the end, is, is changing probably for the fourth or fifth time dramatically. Uh, well, that, that's what goes on. This is investment. And people, you know, uh, invest in buildings for offices, they invest in retail, they invest in entertainment, and, um, and so uh, you're constantly seeing new trends, new ideas, new efforts to make money uh, through investing in property, in, in effect. So yes, Pittsburgh uh, also constantly, and I start this thing uh, practically at 1800 when the city's just starting, and I follow, you know, to about the mid-19th century, there's a, uh, a changing patterns, not just of buildings, but of also where different things are located, clustering together and things, to the industrial, you know, the metropolis, the retrofitted city, as we put it, at 1900 in that stretch, and then again after World War II, and, and then in the 1980s, we see major investment as an effort to post-industrialize the city and it and it continues to go on. It, it doesn't go on when the city uh, investment is severely limited. Well, I wanted to pick up on a couple of things that Ted um, started. One is the fact that we are today we're what's known as an ads med city. If you look at the um, what was the U.S. Steel Building, which was uh, completed in 1974 and was a dominant structure in the downtown. Um, and they're in the region, obviously. Um, it now is the UPMC building. So it reflects the fact that steel, has, while it's still important, um, has um, lost the prominence and the authority that it had 
Um, and that's reflected in the way in which the skyline has changed. Um, so you have the Highmark Blue Shield building, um, as well as UPMC. You have, you're going to have Allegheny General. So you have, and then you have also the transformation of the universities, too, that's gone on. Um, in Oakland particularly, but not only in Oakland, but in the downtown area also, um, with Robert Morris and Point Park. Um, and so that a, a new convergence of forces takes an area that didn't change radically in terms of its size, or its positioning, but begins to use it in different ways. And again, the way, the way in which we don't talk about this particularly, a little bit maybe, or Ted does maybe in his essay in the downtown, um, the cultural center and the way the cultural center has been a, such a major factor in beginning to transform the downtown um, to remake older buildings like Heinz Hall um, and the Benham Center um, and to create a cultural corridor along Penn Avenue. So these are very dramatic changes. The onset of which really began, though, in the period that we talk about in the later period. We talk about the modernization. These are elements that go into the modernization. But I want to go back to the rivers, if you don't mind. Um, the rivers were known as floating coal veins. Um, and that's a phrase that's used in Olmsted's book, I think, in 1910. Floating coal veins. And they were critical in terms of um, cheap transportation of coal that was easily available in the city. And so you have really literally millions of tons of coal being shipped up and down the rivers over time. And in the book, we have some pictures of coal barges. And you can still see coal barges there. But let's just go back to the fact that the mills themselves were basically sited between the railroad tracks on one side and the rivers on the other side. So they could take advantage of transportation with either form, either rail transportation or river transportation. And we have not freed ourselves from the embrace control the embrace of those transportation forms even today. We're beginning to work with the rivers, as Ted talked about, but the railroads still are there and play a very dominant role in terms of limiting and making it much more difficult to have access to the rivers and to use the rivers the way in which we would really like to use the rivers as places of recreation, of enjoyment, and so on. So I think that um, it just what this points out is the way in which it is so difficult to change some of the original infrastructure and site uses and so on that are created in the past as we move into the future. Um, and so it's a constant struggle um, to use the rivers in ways that they could be used much more profitably by the population. But in our essay. Yeah, which it, one? Um, uh, uh, the three, title. Rivers, the three rivers. The three rivers. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, we we title it. Yeah. From industrial infrastructure right. to environmental assets. That's right. And that That's process exactly. is underway, and I yeah. know you know we, uh, and and significantly so, uh, the city's use um, of the rivers and the um, uh, building uh, aspects along the rivers. Uh, have dramatically changed in comparison Which, to no what I'm that, writing right. in the uh, in the riverfront planning essay, about uh, well up into the 1970s. However, I do underscore and, and agree with Joel that in particular, as you leave the city proper, 
the city of Pittsburgh, capital C, uh, and you start moving into the uh, industrial towns, um, you see the struggle um, to rework uh, their riverfronts for the post-industrial world that we're living in now. Um, it's happening in some places, without question. Uh, you know, a, uh, an industry that's no longer functioning uh, is, is a problem in terms of its appearance, lack of revenue for the municipality, the loss of employment. On the other hand, it's an opportunity for whoever can take advantage of it. It's an investment issue. Capital moves around. And uh, to take advantage, and so it's a perfect example. Some places, a lot of places are still within our region, are still struggling with that. Uh, right near where I live, there, there are th uh, one, two, three, four, five municipalities, little municipalities, 5,000 people, that kind of thing, former industrials ones that are building a, uh, cooperating on building a riverfront trail and housing townhouses and things going up along along that trail so it's you know it's it's a process and 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 it's a difficult one one it's of the hardest things right. in, in, one of the hardest things in putting these five communities together is the railroad just as joel was saying because the railroad is a tough negotiator <laughs> Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. We could talk all day oh, about wow. the different yeah. things in your book. But uh, we've been speaking with Edward Muller and Joel Tarr. They are the authors of this book, Making Industrial Pittsburgh Modern. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.